Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Historically, feminists have too often regarded sex workers as either empowered or exploited in a reductive binary that has little relationship to reality. In this illuminating session from All About Women in 2021, a group of sex workers discuss the ins and outs of a complex and frequently misunderstood industry. It does contain frank discussion of sex and violence, so if you have children nearby, you might want to save it for later. It's moderated by writer and broadcaster Yumi Steins. Welcome to this sold-out session of the All About Women Festival. I know it doesn't look sold out, but this is COVID sold out, so <laughs> congratulations on getting a ticket. Um, and a big, can we have a big warm welcome to our speakers today? away from me, Jules Kim is a Korean-Australian, the CEO of Scarlet Alliance Australian Sex Workers Association, which is the peak national organisation that's been representing sex workers and sex worker organisation. And she has been a sex worker and sex worker activist for over 20 years. Jules! <laughs> In the middle... Tilly Lawless is a queer Sydney-based sex worker who is passionate about horses, sex worker rights and feminism. She uses Instagram to speak about personal experiences within the sex industry, which you can follow, Tilly underscore Lawless, and her debut novel, Nothing But My Body, is being released by Alan and Unwin in June. Tilly Lawless! Nearest to me is Chantelle Martin, a trans sex worker who works at the Transgender Outreach Officer as the Transgender Outreach Officer at SWAP. And she's what we're calling the grandma on the panel. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the founding members of the only transgender housing cooperative in New South Wales. So today... Um, and I'm Yumi. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're here to talk about the fraught relationship between sex workers and feminism. And what a great place to do it here at the Sydney Opera House because it's such a mainstream arts organisation where we can work out how feminism fails the sex industry. Jules, can I put that question to you? How does feminism fail the sex industry? Look, I think um, there's some really narrow conceptions of feminisms. I'm a sex worker and I consider myself a feminist. And I think, you know, as a feminist, I respect other women's choice, all women in in all their diversity, to choose how they work and, and to exercise their bodily autonomy. And regardless of whether you're a white woman or a woman of colour or a migrant woman, I think we need to be able to respect the choices of other women and their ability to speak for themselves. And I think that that's where there's a bit of a a divide, where there's this this conception that if you're a sex worker, then, you know, you must be exploited. If you're a migrant sex worker, you must be trafficked. And, And this is not the reality for most sex workers. And the problem with this conception is that when we do experience exploitation and we do experience violence, as women, women do in other professions, it makes it really difficult for us to seek redress because all our work is being conceived in that way. And um, just because we've chosen to be sex workers doesn't mean we've, we're consenting to violence. It means we've chosen to work. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, doesn't, that shouldn't be a barrier to us accessing justice if we need to. Tilly, can I put it to you? Is one of the reasons feminism fails the sex industry because of white saviourism, where people want to kind of swoop in and rescue the sex worker? 
Oh, well, yeah, that's obviously an issue because people are hyper-focused on migrant sex workers who generally aren't white, rather than, like, for example, a sex worker like me who's, like, you know, been to university and is white and people assume I can make, you know, an empowered decision based on choice and, like, other women can't. Um, but I think it's also tied into kind of uh, second-wave feminism of thinking you need to be a certain kind of woman to be a feminist and, like, anything that is seen as, like, catering to the patriarchy is somehow like betraying your kind and like betraying the movement forward of feminism. And I think like a lot of people are threatened by sex workers because um, we employ um, things like hyper femininity to like make money. Um, you know, like we um, often maybe access plastic surgery. Um, also, there's like a huge crossover between um, trans women and sex work. And like a lot of second wave feminists don't believe trans women are women. So, like, that is something that's also threatening about it. And I think also. Also, the fact that, like, sex work is something that often, like, middle-class women and migrant women and um, black women and queer women and stuff um, use to climb the social ladder and, like, achieve financial stability is something that's really threatening to people. Yeah, because it just, like, like sort of upsets that, like, hierarchy that we're meant to exist within. Yeah. Chantel, can I put it to you how feminism has failed you in your experience of the sex industry? Um, yeah, sure. Um, sort of like, well, as a trans woman and um, a past sex worker, um, you know, feminism has kind of not been gentle with trans women full stop. Um, um, a lot of feminists see us as men um, or as um, men who are trying to steal feminist identities, which is so not true, you know, so not true. And so when they see us in the sex industry, it's kind of like, okay, so you must be oppressed then, you know? And it's not like that at all. Totally not like that at all. I mean, as a sex worker, I, I, I enjoyed what I did. I loved what I did, you know? And it was my choice. It was my body. And, uh, yeah. I want to talk about oppression um, and, and sex work, uh, but I just wanted to tell the audience that if you've got a question for our panel, you're actually very welcome to ask a question. We're using Slido to collect anything that you want to ask for the Q&A portion of this talk. So if you're here in the venue or if you're watching from home, just open any browser that you use, um, go to sli.do and type in the event code all about women, select the venue. So this is the drama theatre and you'll be directed to the questions submission page. You can do it from here, you can do it from home and you can also look at other questions others have asked and vote for them to be asked more, uh, to be more likely to be asked, sli.do, sli.do. Um, Chantel, back to you. Let's talk about how the effect of the intersection of um, culture, so you're an Indigenous New Zealander, um, being a person of colour, street-based sex work has exacerbated the discrimination that you've experienced. Yeah, so, and and I guess to share the story, um, it's, it's, it's really like coming from New Zealand, okay, and being a trans woman of colour and working in the industry, um, what I witnessed as a trans sex worker was the, the slight differences in discrimination and stigma, especially towards my other sisters here in Australia, um, the sister girls. And, um, and, and that, you know, where I was seen as okay, but my sister girls weren't, and so they experienced so much more discrimination and stigma than I did. And for me, that was really sad. That it was really saddening to see that happen and experience that on the street. I mean, an example was where one night I asked a sister to actually flag a taxi down, and she said, oh, they won't stop for me, you know. And I said, yeah, they will. Stop trying to get out of it, you know. And she said, um, I'm telling you, sis, they're not. And I said, stand up and get a taxi. So I stood there, she stood up to flag the taxi down. It was coming out of the cross, it pulled over, and as soon as it saw her, it pulled away. Took off. And then, and she goes, see, I told you. And I said to her, just keep trying, because I didn't believe her. And then another two taxis came along, waited till she touched the door handle, and when she pulled the door open, it drove off, and that, was unbelievable. So I went and stood out there 
and three taxis pulled over. Mm. And yeah, and that, that, that is, yes. So that's the experience mm. I've had. Tilly, you're about to go to a Mardi Gras party right after this panel. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm dressed like this at the Opera House. <laughs> Some of us are going to see other talks that you're yeah. up to a party. Um, just speaking of Mardi Gras, queer rights intersecting with sex worker rights. How do those two overlap? Yeah, well, obviously, historically, like, um, I know, like, queer people are so much more accepted now than they used to be, but, like, historically, queer people were often shut out of normal jobs, and so sex work was a way queer people could access financial stability and also often didn't have to be hired in, like, the normal way, and it still is um, an industry that a lot of queer people enter, especially, like, um, black trans women, but also it is... There, it also, in the queer community, generally, like, you see a lot more of acceptance of sex work than you see in the straight community. You know, like, for example, like, mixing with my gay guy friends, like, none of them have ever questioned me doing sex work. And, like, a lot of them have actually often informally kind of worked in, in sex work, you know, like a little bit of like a paid grind to date here and there. So it's kind of something that a lot of queer people have like dabbled in. Um, and for me, the two are just, you know, like obviously now we see with like homonormativity, you know, where like um, queer people are trying to prove that we are valuable because like we're respectable people, you know, like we say like, oh, you know, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have two kids and I'm going to, you know, have a corporate job and pay tax and, you know, live in Paddington and drink champagne and that kind of thing. But like... <laughs> Like, um, and they're trying to kind of like push, you know, separate themselves from like the kind of rabble of sex work. But for me, it's really important to remember that the the two communities are so intertwined. And if you, you know, like the Opera House is a is a um, arts institution that really openly supports um, queer people. And I think if they openly support queer people, you need to recognise that supporting queer rights is supporting sex worker rights. Yeah. Mm. Jules, I want to talk about oppression and I want to know, you know, in your 20 years of experience, why does feminism have such a problem with sex work? <laughs> That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you know, I think uh, it comes from a lot of the times what i found that it does come from uh, misconceptions and sometimes, you know, I've been speaking to people and they often think um, that they're helping these poor sex workers, particularly poor yellow sex workers or poor brown sex workers, and, um, you know, that are caught in these really awful, desperate situations and need to be rescued. Mm. So I think that sometimes, you know, it um, comes from a lack of misunderstanding and it's not um, from any ill intent so much as... Uh, complete misinformation, you know, and um, also very racialized and uh, privileged uh, conceptions of who sex workers are, particularly migrant sex workers. And um, to be honest, you know, when I first started, um, uh, you know, working at Scarlet Alliance and I, I did a, a study tour around um, a Asia and, and met with a lot of sex worker activists and met with um, and, and uh, was in, spent three months in Thailand with the Empower Foundation. And, you know, regardless of even being an Asian sex worker, I was born in Korea and I mig migrated to Australia. Um, having studied um, and grown up in Australia, I still had those kind of first world misconceptions myself, you know, like you have those things that, that Tilly spoke about, like, oh, it's okay because I had choices. Well, you know, these people have choices too. These are the choices that they make. And in fact, um, it, in a lot of ways, they, their activism was far more advanced and, um, you know, um, extreme than ours was. You know, they've, they've got their own sex work venues where um, it's cooperatively owned by sex workers and they have sick pay and holiday leave um, and it's called the Can Do Bar in Chiang Mai. Um, they've got, like, you know, sex worker centres everywhere and yet we don't hear about these kinds of things when we hear about Thai sex workers it's about these poor trafficked sex workers that are you know trapped and um, you know need to be rescued and um, and the conception of rescue usually has nothing to do with what people really need if people are actually being exploited, and let me give you an example, like in the case of, like, um, say, 7-Eleven or Domino's that was in the media and really high profile, exploitation was taking place, but immediately people were like, OK, so let's, let's get these people the, the wages that they, they weren't paid. 
But when a sex work scenario, it doesn't come down to, you know, let's get these lost wages for these sex workers. It's like, how do we rescue these poor yellow women from their job? And it's like, mm. no, actually, we want our lost wages. We don't need to be rescued from sex work. Sure. Sex work's not the issue. We just had an asshole employer and we actually need to get redress for the workplace exploitation, just like other workers. But in fact, when they, when you know these rescue operations happen, that actually um, pull women from their livelihood and deport them, actually still holding the debt and with reduced opportunity paying them back, it doesn't improve their lives in any way. It doesn't help them or support them in any way. Yet um, it's it's kind of conceived as a form of rescue, mm. and I think that's fundamentally a massive problem um, that people need to understand. That actually, if you want to support us, and if you want to support um, workers, including workers who are experiencing exploitation, then we need to decriminalise sex work. We will talk about decriminalising in a sec. The idea of choice is really interesting to me because it reminds me of a conversation about women who choose not to have children, mm-hmm. and the the dialogue is. Um, but what if you change your mind and you're allowed to have this choice so long as you eventually choose to have children? Right. <laughs> you know, how dare you choose not to have children? And I think it's really the same. People are like, women should have the choice so long as they eventually choose not to do sex work. Right, mm. right, right. <laughs> Tilly, a lot of people assume that sex work is only what people do when they don't have a choice. Um, and that they're merely doing it until their circumstances change. So when you show pride in your work, enjoyment, humour around it, how does that disrupt and how is it received? Well, um, I think with as sex workers, we're kind of... Um shoved into this corner of only being able to speak about our work in a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, we can we can speak about it as we are now in kind of, like, a pragmatic view of, like, speaking about the rights, and that's obviously incredible. But when we speak about having a bad day, we have to be careful with that because our words can be used and weaponised against us by anti-sex work people. Um, one of the things that's really important for me in speaking about my work is speaking about it as a varied thing that's often very absurd, you know, like you're being put into really intimate scenarios with people that you haven't met before and you're having to read unconscious cues and it's basically every single moment of sex work is like really intense improv classes, you know? Like you're having to work out what this person wants and what you're going to do in response and respond in a way that sets your boundaries but doesn't aggravate them and it creates some scenarios that can be very stressful but also scenarios that are hilarious. And like (laughs) for me, like I like to speak about those funny things because I also think we should be able to speak about sex work beyond the binary of, um, you know, exploited or empowered or whatever. And I think also sex workers should be allowed space. So I think, for example, people who are like marginalised, we're often othered and we're only allowed to speak about ourselves in kind of... um, very, very um, minimal ways. So, you know, like, if you're, if you're a trans woman, if you're a sex worker, um, if you're a um, drug, uh, injecting drug user, you're allowed to write, for example, a memoir that's a bit salacious, but you aren't allowed to write a dark comedy because that would really challenge people, you know? And also that would be like, how are you finding something funny in your work when your work can be a little bit traumatic, you know? But like, for me, I feel like often as, I know that marginalised people, like, we often um, find solidarity and um, get get over difficult things by seeing the humour in the situations. Um, so that that's a really important thing to me, is to be able to create, create art and work around sex work that is um, allowed to be more varied and allowed to step outside that just like salacious like non-fiction element or purely like rights focused things but in terms of like the choice aspects like that's something that interests me too because like you know when I entered sex work I really didn't really have many other options like I was like um, you know, didn't have uh, family financial support. Well, my family wasn't in, even in an ability to, like, help me in any way. And so I entered it out of financial need. But as I've stayed in it, I have, you know, I've been in it for eight years now and I could have left at many points now. Like, I have had other opportunities. And so for what some, for something that was, at the beginning, you know, like, sure, you could say I was coerced by capitalism to do it because that's, like, a phrase that people like to use, has become something that, you know, I've stayed in because 
to be honest, like every single work day is different and I never come home not having a funny story to tell to someone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah. wait to read your book. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Um, and just on that idea of a book and a narrative, the injecting drug user, having read lots of those books, they often have to end with them coming clean, them quitting their bad mm. habit and mm. that's how they get to write that book and mm. tell that story. Yeah. Um, Chantelle. Yes. Um, you've been in a sex, you started working in the sex industry decades ago. What's changed since your early days? For me um, and for many of my other sisters um, who I worked with um, on the street, um, look, I, I, came, I came into the industry in, in 1986, so um, decrim was nowhere to be seen. We were working in a criminalised state, so what was happening there was that we just, you know, we had, we didn't have rights. So sex workers didn't have rights back then. Um, and we didn't have rights in the way where if something happened to us on the street, we couldn't report it. Um, and if something happened with a client, we couldn't report it. And the clients knew it. And the clients bloody knew it. So, so we had to come together, all sex workers had to come together on the street to protect ourselves. Now, in 1995, we had decrim, and that was brought around because of the Wood Royal Commission into the um, New South Wales Police Corruption. And, and the corruption was unbelievable back in the day. You know, we, we had brown paper bags with money hidden, tucked away and given to parlour owners so that they wouldn't get raided. And then we had trans workers that were um, pulled over, chucked into, into the paddy wagons, and our money was taken off us, and we'd be driven right out to Blacktown and dropped off uh, in the hope that we would get bashed and left there to find our own way back into the city. So all of that stuff happened um, back then in a criminalised state. And then in 1995, we had the Wood Royal Commission, and then we had Digcrim come around. And for for the trans workers anyway on the street um, because we were so used to hearing the police go past for the, uh, on their paddy wagons right past us and say, evening boys, and what we would do to, you know, to come back, our comeback was evening girls. Uh, and so it kind of like, and, and what could you do? I mean, there was nothing we could do about it, you know. Um, we couldn't report to them who were doing that to us. Um, so um, it changed. Um, there was a commander from King's Cross who actually came down and he'd come down um, every Thursday nights and stand there and be there with us introducing himself, which we found really, really um, strange that this <laughs> guy standing there with all these bloody buttons on his shoulder. We knew he was important, but we were just thinking, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> you know I mean, you, you, you guys are coming down here throwing shit at us. Now we've got the big brass down here. So, but he, he made a big change for, 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 for sex workers down there. He changed the way that his officers treated us. Uh, uh, a couple of officers got caught actually calling us um, evening, saying evening boys to us. They didn't see their commander standing tucked away behind us because he was talking to um, some, some workers. And as they drove past, they yelled out, evening boys, and we yelled back, evening girls. And then the commander stepped out of the shadows and went, stop, <laughs> reverse back. And he made them apologise to us and address us in the way that we should be addressed. Evening, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so, if one person can make a difference, um, the, the idea of making sex work criminalised seems to give impunity to abusers mm -hmm. uh, because they're keeping everybody undercover. Uh, but most of all, sex workers. Mm. Did were there a lot of conversations about the Christian Porter rape allegations among your co-workers? Uh, which one of us are you addressing, or any of we, us? Tilly, would you like to? Um, I mean, I actually haven't been at work in the last week because I was sick and then had thrush. So <laughs> I, I don't know if my co-workers are speaking about it, but to be honest, most of the women I work with are um, South American migrants and 
we don't generally talk politics in the room. Like, we're generally often talking about their children back home and sometimes I'm helping with them, them with their English. Like, um, when I have worked in brothels um, where it's mainly, like, uh, white Australian girls, like, we do talk politics, but um, the place I'm at now, I feel like we're generally just trying to have, like, a fun time and a giggle and escape from the, um, you know, the outside world. Yeah. Jules, is this the sort of thing that that sticks in your mind? <laughs> well, look, you know, um, the example that um, Chantal gave about um, the experiences of sex workers, um, what people need to understand is that that's happening around Australia because sex work, to a large degree, is criminalised and sex workers are targeted by the police. And this is still going on in Australia. And I think people sort of seem, you know, seem to think that, oh, well, for the most part, it's, you know, um, not illegal in Australia. And that's actually not the case. So there are actually active campaigns um, challenging criminalisation of sex work and the targeting by police, including in jurisdictions where, like um, Queensland and Victoria where sex work is um, licensed. So that means it's actually still regulated by the police. And essentially what this means is that the majority of sex workers can't comply with the owner's conditions of licensing also, by law, police are exempt from prosecution um, and will, will pose undercover as clients or sex workers in order to entrap sex workers and arrest us. Um, and this, is, this still goes on um, daily and these abuses are being enacted against sex workers. It's still, um, you know, if, for example, in WA, a sex worker doesn't have the right to remain silent. You can be strip-searched on suspicion of being a sex worker just because, you know, somebody thinks that you might be a sex worker or you've been arrested before, mm. you're standing on the wrong corner and you've got condoms in your bag. That's, that's enough for you to be dragged down to the police station and strip-searched. And, um, and this is just because you're a sex worker. And, you know, these violations are happening against sex workers every day let alone when we're a victim of crime. Mm. There have been too many cases where sex workers, when they've tried to report sexual assault, and sex work is work and sexual assault is rape, right? Sexual assault is sexual assault. And it is possible for a sex worker to be sexually assaulted. And when we try and report those crimes, particularly in jurisdictions where we're still criminalised, in fact, sometimes we can get arrested just for trying to report a crime against us. And, and or, or not believed, like, what did you expect? You're a sex worker, it was mm. part of your job. And it's not. And, you know, I think there's kind of small examples of how uh, sex worker organisations have built those bridges to kind of work with police. It's like a never-ending job, though. So, you know, it's a bit of um, potluck in terms of what, what police station you work, walk into, which police officer you talk to. Um, so, you know, it makes it very, very difficult to seek redress. It, it, even, even somewhere like New South Wales, where sex work is decriminalised, because those misconceptions and stigma and discrimination still run so deep and, uh, you know, and unfortunately very deep within the justice system. Mm. Jules, I, think, I, yeah. I think also, too, yeah. that... Um, Decrim did a, a lot of good for, for sex workers, but it didn't do any good for discrimination mm. and stigma, mm. you know, so... Yeah, unfortunately, sex workers still aren't covered by anti-discrimination yeah. protections in New South Wales. So that's still a massive gap. Um, there is a bill before Parliament at the moment, and hopefully um, we will see um, that gap being bridged yeah. um, so that sex workers are able to seek redress for um, discrimination and vilification. Tilly, how does stigma and oppression play out in, in a sort of day-to-day -day life? Oh, I mean... There's sort of, like, logistical things of, like, you know, like, sex workers can't donate blood, like, um, sex workers can't enter the United States. Like, the United States actually has one of the strictest rules against prostitutes entering in the world. Like, they don't allow you to enter if you've done prostitution 
any time in the last 10 years, like regardless of whether you're wanting to work there or not. Um, obviously, it plays out against, you know, like as Jules said, the legal system's pretty rigged against sex workers. Like um, I've had friends lose custody of children um, because they've been a sex worker, um, you know, um, getting a rental, um, also transitioning. If you do want to leave sex work, transitioning into other work, like your... Um, our work isn't seen as legitimate work, so it's really hard to, you know, have our references from, like, a brothel manager, like, seen as something that, even though, like, I'm, like, I'm pretty much a diplomat, like, some of the things I've done, but <laughs> other um, people don't see it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it comes up with lots of things like that, but then it also comes, uh, it come, happens in, like, in more personal things, you know? It can be very hard to date as a sex worker, um, and I find I have sometimes settled for relationships, and I know other sex workers who have that um, particularly healthy relationships because you're just grateful to get anyone who will date you um, because you're not seen as desirable in that kind of way, like not someone who wants to be brought home to parents or maybe not someone, you know, maybe you're good enough to mess around with but not good enough to have children with or like whatever. So it comes, you know, the stigma is something that you... Um, come up against every single day. And as Chantel was saying, like, it's not something, unfortunately, that legislation changes. Like, I think something like stigma is, like, much more cultural and deeply ingrained and, unfortunately, can't be changed like that, like laws can. Mm. It o often has to be changed generationally. Mm. So I think we will see the effect of the work we're doing now in our children's children, you know? And it's, like, so it's, it's a very long game. Yeah. Can you see any change within, like, the work that you do, Tilly, like, with... Oh, yeah, 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 no, totally. I see a difference from when I started eight years ago. Like, when I started, like, I, you know, none of my friends knew what I was doing. I was, like, deeply ashamed of it. Now, like, there's, like, I can mention that I'm a sex worker to people and they're like, oh, cool, you know? Like, they're, like, completely unfazed. But, I mean, I will say that's in Australia. Um, and also that's in Australia amongst left-wing people in a pretty, like, fairly, like, queer sort of, like, feminist bubble. Um, when I have travelled overseas, if I say what I do, people are really, really confronted. Mm. I think Australia has, like, quite a um, unique culture, both because of the laws in some of our states um, and also the... Uh, which has allowed sex workers to be more visible than in other countries, and that has, like, fostered a dialogue and a culture that is far more welcoming of sex workers than a lot of other places are, yeah. Chantelle, does that reflect your experience? Did you have friends outside of sex work that you could be frank with about what you did for a living? Not really, but not that I gave a damn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, <clears throat> I think as a, as a sex worker, I think I was just out there and, and proud of it. So if my friends couldn't handle it, well, they weren't meant to be with me. Yeah. Yeah. Jules, culturally, is this something that you could say, for instance, raise with your family? Yeah, eventually I did, you know. Um, it, it's, you know, disclosure, there's, there's real reasons as to why people um, might choose not to disclose their work and um, actually really think about that. Uh, and, and, of course, because of, of, of the stigma and discrimination. But, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, I, I did. The sky didn't fall down. It's a very uh, core part of who I am. It still is. I have a partner that I've been with for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, I think many sex workers um, do have relationships, believe it or not, and uh, have healthy relationships. Um, and it, it doesn't mean just because we are sex workers that we're incapable of doing that. I just wanted to say as well, though, I think... Um, Despite uh, law reform not actually changing those perceptions, it is integral um, to improving um, conditions. And as, um, you know, Chantelle spoke about, when sex work did become decriminalised, successive government reviews and the experiences of sex workers in New South Wales have shown that it improved our access to work health and safety. It improved our ability to, you know, report crimes. If, um, if you know, if we didn't like our, our workplaces, we could go and work somewhere else. Um, so, you know, it does make a difference, but it does require 
Um, also, mm. there's still issues because we don't have a standard model of decriminalisation around Australia. It's only in two states at the moment, and so it's still still very patchy and stigma and discrimination needs to be constantly challenged. And that means it needs to be constantly challenged by, by all of us, mm. not just sex workers, mm. by calling it out as unacceptable when you, when you hear it. Not, not um, you know, just kind of casually um, making it another whorephobic comment as mm. a joke, you know, as a butt of a joke. It's, it, it requires everyone to kind of realise that it's unacceptable and, and to call it out when they hear it. Mm. Um, we've got some questions here, and if you'd like to ask a question, we're using Slido, sli.do. Um, just Google that on whatever browser you use. The event code is all about women, and the uh, theatre we're in is the drama theatre. Um, these are probably two questions directed at you, Jules. Um, how can we find the balance between accepting sex work and acknowledging that some women are forced or coerced mm -hmm. into a position of working in the industry? Mm -hmm. And from Rachel, I'm a social worker and sometimes suspect my client is being exploited. Mm -hmm. How do I do this without perpetuating the idea that all sex workers are exploited? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they're great questions. And um, certainly it's not a, a, a mutually exclusive proposition. You know, like um, all jobs, um, there are good workplaces and bad workplaces, good and bad bosses, and there are people that do experience exploitation. And this is why we say it's so important to have these enabling legal frameworks so that, you know, that sex workers can report crimes against us, can seek retribution for bad workplace conditions. And I think that that um, is, it, it's this kind of um, thinking that people have is like if somebody is being, if somebody's being exploited in a sex work scenario, not actually looking at that scenario and saying, what does this person need? What are the support needs of this person? What is it that they're actually going through instead of, oh my God, you know, all sex work is bad and everyone must get out of sex work and we need to rescue all sex workers. You know, it's, it's, it's a massive leap uh, between this crime that's been committed here um, and, and, you know, like this perception that, that all of sex work is problematic. So I think, you know, uh, my advice is listen um, to your client, ask them what they need. Don't make an assumption because they're a sex worker and they're having a bad day or, you know, um, that they're experiencing something. Actually ask them if you're worried. Um, actually ask them what's going on. Ask them if they need support. Uh, people know, um, I think, they are actually best placed to tell you what they need. Um, and also, you know, if, if you, um, you know, I would encourage you to reach out to your local sex worker organisation as well. Um, there's, there's a, you know, a, a list of all the state and territory member organisations of Scarlet Alliance, amazing peer sex worker organisations in each state and territory um, that are, um, are able to kind of work with you and, um, you know, um, actually help um, probably do some in-services with um, your organisation as well to, to build those bridges and connections and to help help um, under, increase the understanding of, of um, sex work. I'm going to direct this question to Tilly, um, but I have a feeling you've all got something to say on the idea. So from Juno Max, um, TED Talk, yeah. she mentioned how the sex industry is a site of deeply entrenched social inequality. Most buyers of sex are men with money and most sellers are women without. Um, which brings me to a comment by Anonymous on Slido who said, sex workers are experts in negotiating consent with our diverse client population. Mm. When will be, we be acknowledged as being at the forefront of consent education? Mm. Oh, yeah. Love that. Great question. <laughs> and I did notice, Tilly, you mentioned your boundaries and reinforcing mm. them. What have you got that we can learn from about consent and boundaries? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about... Um, that sex work teaches you about consent is what I was talking about earlier, is about unconscious cues. Like, I feel like one of the focuses that we talk about um, so much in the media is about verbal consent. And the reality is, unfortunately, consent isn't actually... And this is going to sound awful to say because I know um, black and white is thrown around about rape allegations, but I'm not speaking about rape allegations. I'm speaking about the fact that consent isn't something static. 
it's like fluctuating. It's always fluctuating. It's like you can feel like doing something in one moment and then in the next moment you don't feel like doing it. And it's also something that we can give out not just through our words, but through the way our bodies move. And I think I would love if the education around consent um, took it, because also not everyone is verbal. Do you know what I mean? Like I see um, disabled clients who are non-verbal and have to, you know, communicate with them in other ways. And like they've come into the brothel, so like I know they've come in choosing to see me, but I'm still having to engage in an intimate sexual service with them without the added um, benefit of like language, which is what I usually rely on. You know? So um, I think, you know, sex workers are really, really well versed in picking up on unconscious behavioural cues that people give and also in recognising that um, consent is something that continues throughout an encounter, you know, and it's like it, it really is a, a sort of like a malleable thing and like consent to me is not, is not this thing that you can like sign a thing for and then have. Consent is more like conversation. It's something that moves between you and is, 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 always, kind of, is always kind of shifting. And I wish that, um, yeah, conversations and like education around consent recognise that, like how nuanced it is. Um, and I also wish that conversations around consent taught you how to <laughs> say no to things, but also de-escalate through saying no. Because sometimes people do take offence when you say no. And I think sex workers, are, as I said, like, you know, I feel like I'm kind of like a diplomat sometimes because you learn to be very tactful and not upset people's ego. And, like, the reality is people's ego shouldn't be upset by being rejected. But a lot of people's ego is upset by being rejected. <laughs> so, like, how, how can we manage it in a way that people don't arc up at you when you set a boundary? Um, and I think those kind of, like, sort of, like, tactful, like, things are something that sex workers are just so on top of yeah mm. I love that all so much thank you Tilly <laughs> Chantel in your experience is it the same like you have to be a diplomat yeah pretty much so. <laughs> pretty much so and it's something also too that you it's it's a work in progress okay because I know definitely when I started in the sex industry it was kind of like hard to navigate um, what what I would let the client do or not mm -hmm. and and you know I, I made a few mistakes but didn't take me long to work out that hey I'm the one in control here right, right? and I had to work out a way of doing that in the same in, in, in a way where I wouldn't lose the client mm -hmm. or with where I wouldn't um, like have the client turn on me mm -hmm. so I found it um, really easy to um, be humorous about it mm -hmm. yeah and just say, look, when they say, look, when a client would say, oh, I want to do this, and I want to do this, and I want to do this, and I go, oh, darling, you don't have enough money to do that. <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 and he'll go, what do you mean? I'm paying you for it. And I'll go, yes, but you, you want me, you, you, you're paying me this amount of money to right. go around the world. That's only going to get you just out of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Kimberly. <laughs> I can see how you'd use humour in those situations. <laughs> Very disarming. The reason I mentioned about uh, the Juno Mac quote about the inequality, buyers of sex are men with money, sellers of sex are mostly women without, is because of that power imbalance that really affects um, consent sometimes. So to all three of you here on the panel, when you're fortifying, defending, sticking up for your boundaries, what is your greatest weapon? Look, I think um, in a lot of ways, sex workers uh, negotiate consent mm. far more explicitly than um, people ordinarily do in sexual encounters. So we're very skilled at negotiating our boundaries, negotiating our services, negotiating the price for those services. Mm. Uh, it, it, you know, like uh, the services that we provide are, are heavily negotiated. And um, so we're very adept at talking about sex and negotiating and talking about consent and uh, actually kind of... You know, and I think people could learn a lot from that. So I really love that question that came up about sex workers being consent educators because we really are. Mm. Uh, and, it, yeah, I think that there, there is a, a lot to be learnt um, from sex workers in um, talking about sexuality and consent more openly. 
I think also what Chantelle said about disarming through humour mm. is really valid. And I know I often deflect so it doesn't feel like it's rejection. Like if a guy is pushing for something that I don't want to do at that time, um, I've learned if I say, um, no, I don't do that or I don't offer it as a service, they still push for it. But if I say, oh, I actually have a partner outside and I save it for them, they go, oh, okay, I get that. Because they would like their girlfriend <laughs> to save something for them. So I'm like, yeah. you know, then it doesn't look like I've rejected them. So like, <laughs> yeah. Um, how have mainstream online content sites and subscription services, I guess they're talking about OnlyFans and stuff like that, impacted full service sex work? Mm. Look, you know, I mean, uh, technology has has always been a part of sex work. Um, that is, uh, and sex work is, I think, when people think about sex work and sex workers, they have a very narrow conception of what that means. And actually, in fact, it's really diverse. We're not just women doing full service. It's actually a broad array of services, and some of it is actually contact services, and some of it is online and non-contact, um, you know, uh, we, we are so diverse in terms of, in every aspect, you know, in the services that we provide, in our sex and gender, um, and um, in, in our racial diversity. Um, so, in just just like any other profession, we are incredibly uh, diverse, and and that is the beauty of sex work. We do set our own boundaries about the services that we do provide, and we can do that. And I think that's a flexibility that not many jobs do have. Mm. I think there is a paranoia um, amongst um, some people that um, online work is taking away from um, in-person work, and but that isn't just about like online sex work. I remember the same, you know, like working at brothels when Tinder first came out. Everyone was like, "It's quiet because everyone just gets free sex on Tinder now," and it's like <laughs> kind of like setting up like the online world as yeah, as like sapping like you know the real world. But like to be honest, like I don't see them as like that in competition because like for me. Uh, a client who wants to come in and pay for like actual physical touch, mm. if if that's what they want, they're going to choose that. Like you know, OnlyFans is no actual replacement for that. Like for me, only as a full service sex worker, I see OnlyFans way more aligned with porn than with the kind of work I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't. I mean, one of the things I do want to say about OnlyFans because I feel like so many people don't realise this is like you know, OnlyFans obviously is, you know, has sex workers working on it. Um, but OnlyFans as a platform is anti-sex work. So anti-full service sex work. So if they find out that you sell in-person sex work, like not even on the platform, just in your life outside of OnlyFans, they will delete your account. Um, so it's not really the kind of like sex worker friendly place that you think it is. It's sex worker friendly for online sex workers, mm -hmm. not for full service sex workers, yeah. So it's more dangerous? No, it's not that it's more dangerous. It's just that your, pla your, your account can be deleted at any point and you have your earnings taken off you. Mm. So it's like you're kind of constantly like precarious on it and, um, yeah, your earnings can be confiscated. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, a, a question from our audience. Um, as people who are not part of the industry but who do want to be part of supporting sex workers, mm -hmm. what are some practical things we can do to help? Can I start with you, Chantelle? Yeah, um, I think to support sex workers, I think it would be really, really, really good. Um, like, I love the term nothing about us without us, you know, and kind of like um, doing your research and finding out so much more about that. Look, Google is, I've been told Google's my friend. I keep, <laughs> I keep saying to my manager, I mean, I want to know about this. She goes, Chantelle, Google's your friend. <laughs> but yeah, it is, you know, research, do stuff of, you know, research, um, well, uh, sex workers and, um, and also to, if you're an organisation and you want to work with um, sex workers, I mean, nothing about us without us. So if you're going to put out material and resources, make sure you include sex worker voices, you know. Jules, have you got some thoughts about yeah. being a better ally? 
Yeah, I think listen to the voices of sex workers is really important. Um, also, you know, there's um, active law reform campaigns happening all around Australia to support um, positive law reform that's led by sex workers. I think sometimes, as, as, as we spoke about, there can be um, these laws that are supposedly for our own good but have not bothered to actually listen to sex workers or to consult sex workers and, in fact, are quite harmful um, for, for in reality. So it's really important that those um, law reform campaigns actually involve sex workers and are led by sex workers. We saw a really great positive example of that when sex work was decriminalised in NT last year, which was, yeah, amazing. <laughs> but sadly, only the third place in the world to do so. So, and, and actually the first place um, where it actually legitimately did so, because in New Zealand, migrant sex workers are still criminalised, and in New South Wales, street-based sex workers are largely criminalised, except in certain areas. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. So I think um, it's really to, to support support sex workers, but also, as we said before, you know, when you read these things in the media, it, 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 it actually feeds into these deeply held stereotypes that we have and um, deeply held kind of racist and sexist and slut-shaming stereotypes that, that we all hold to some degree. So it's really important to unpack that and challenge it and to think about what's behind that. I mean, there's been so many cases where we've supported sex workers, like, let's say, there's been Two, um, my, two Asian sex workers that have been working together, but it's actually illegal to work together. And then you see it in the newspaper and it's like, brothel madam busted for prostitution ring. You know, and actually it was just two sex workers sharing a premises. But so often these things get blown out of proportion and, and you don't really hear the real story. So I think to kind of really question it and, um, yeah... Listen to sex workers, support sex workers. Like being at an event like this today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Tilly, have you got something to add to that idea about how to be better allies to sex workers? No, I think like a lot of what Jules was saying, like the practical things um, with like helping with campaigns and stuff. And then I think just like the everyday things of like calling out a friend if they say something really awful about sex workers. But... Um, no, yeah, nothing more. The, the law that um, Jules was talking about is from the Northern Territory and it's a leading kind of uh, piece of legislation that the rest of the world is kind of using as a model. Right. Very progressive um, sex work mm. legislation. Okay, I love this question. It is going to all three of you, if you maybe take turns to answer. Um, from Anonymous, what has been your favourite moment in your career? Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, wow. Um... When, when sex work got decriminalised in NT last year. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, I have three kind of like little things that come to mind. Um, one of my favourite moments of my career was when I got booked by a pregnant woman because she'd never had sex with a woman before and she wanted to try it because like being pregnant made her horny and like that was just, she was seven months pregnant and it was so hot and it was also so special to be like paid for that and I felt like I was just let into such an intimate like part of her life. Um, another really special moment was um, when I had a client who I'd been seeing for like five years after his divorce and he um, broke up with me in like, you know, he was like, I can't see you anymore. And the reason was because he'd started dating this um, Taiwanese migrant woman who was a sex worker and he wanted to be like monogamous with her. And he was like to me, you know, I never would have dated her if I hadn't spent these five years getting to know you because like getting to know you and hearing you speak about your girlfriends and the people you're in love with, I was able to recognize that you can do this work and still have a, like a functional and like loving relationship. And so he's like, that has allowed me to open up to the idea of dating a sex worker and also having her still work while um, while I'm with her and like they're now like having a baby together and they have this whole life together I'm like wow I changed two people's lives in that interaction <laughs> and it's just like I'm like wow she's got the best part of it because I trained him up but like <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway so I really love that and um another just like a funny moment because like I was speaking about the absurdity of work I had this client um a few weeks back, come into the brothel, and he's an um, intellectually disabled client who comes in and sees me like um, fairly often, and he's really lovely. And I was like riding on top of him, and um, he goes, "You're so beautiful." And I was like, "Oh, thanks." And then he goes, "You look exactly like Robert De Niro with your mole." <laughs> <laughs> 
Huge compliment. <laughs> Robert De Niro is really hot. Like, I'm so about that. <laughs> Chantelle, do you have a memory of your favourite day at work? Um, yeah, look, I... I um, look, as a street-based sex worker almost 30 years ago and then trying out, um, transitioning into working in a brothel um, and, and then finally ending up um, in, in the private sector, like working in as a private worker, um, I think that was a real pivotal moment for me because I had worked in those three different areas and then found that working as a private worker, I became like my own boss and, um, and, and also to the different ways in, 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 in working in the industry, like as George said before, the diversity, uh, and also to, as a private worker, I was my own boss, I called the shots, I saw who I wanted to when I was ready, and um, I remember before starting in the private sector, uh, a client uh, I saw, an, an accountant, I said to him, oh, I'm not getting much bloody work, and he goes, but that's because you're not looking at your, what you're doing as, as a business. And I went, what are you talking about? All I do is suck cock. And he goes, <laughs> and, uh, and he spun around and he said, no, you've got to look at it as your business. And I thought, wow, I never thought about that. And this accountant, client of mine, sat there and talked me through how I could make myself a better whore. <laughs> and I'm, I love that. love it. You know? You know, he said to me, you have to see yourself, um, your, what you do as a business, and you have to see yourself as a product. And I went, what, like a can of spray? And he goes, not, well, ex yeah. And so <laughs> you kind of like have to find a way, okay, of selling that product. And you know what? That was the pivotal moment for me. Wow. Yeah. And that's amazing. Um, can anyone on the panel, this is a question from Anonymous, can anyone on the panel speak about the intersection of disability and sex work? You've alluded to this a couple of times, Tilly. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's... I feel like I, it's probably not really my place to speak about because, like, I don't have a disability. I do have, like, a number of um, friends with disabilities who do sex work, um, and I think you know, the, I think there's a lot of crossover between um, people with disabilities and people who do sex work because often um, sex work allows you more flexible hours and things that you um, can do if you have like a chronic illness or um, severe mental health problems. Um, I think also um, one of the other things about disabled clients is often disabled clients are weaponized um, as like kind of this tool to be like, you have to support sex work because like, oh, but what about, you know, people with disabilities who can't have any way to, uh, other way to have sex? Like, of course, you must be okay with them, you know, seeing a sex worker. And um, I find that, like, a little bit of a problematic way to speak because, firstly, it assumes that people with disabilities don't have sex outside of paid sex. Um, and I also think, also, if you're only accepting sex work um, under the thing of, like, um, of seeing clients as, like, um, pitiful, do you know what I mean? Then you're not really accepting sex work, you know? Mm. Um, but I feel like I should... I feel like in general there, you know, there are a number of um, sex workers with disabilities who, who speak about that intersection who'd be, you know, better placed to um, speak about it than me. Did you guys want to say anything? No, I mean, I think that there is... Um, it, it is... Um, Important though, there are some great organisations that are working oh, yeah. with um, sex workers and, and people with disabilities, such as um, Touching Base, um, and connecting um, sex workers and training um, service providers as well. So, um, if people are interested in finding out more, there's also a great film called Scarlet Road, um, yeah. which is a sex worker, Rachel Watton, um, who um, specialises in seeing clients with disabilities. And I'd really highly recommend um, you watch it if you haven't seen it already. Speaking of films, how much does Pretty Woman have to apologise? Just <laughs> <laughs> sort of setting that narrative of the woman who's to be rescued. I mean, I still love it. Really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love Julia Roberts, but the reality is there's no way she'd be a street-based sex worker. Someone would have scouted her for modelling. Like, she's so hot. <laughs> that's, that's the first wrong premise with the film. <laughs> I don't mean that's just Hollywood, right? Yeah, you know? no, that's really Hollywood. <laughs> Probably, I've, ne I've um... never watched it. Oh, really? No. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> 
What are the internalised misconceptions you've had to overcome about sex workers yourselves? Look, you know, I think, um, like, you know, I was talking about those deeply held archetypes and stereotypes and that we have, you know, and whorephobia is one of them because from day dot we've fed this kind of, you know, stereotypes and misconceptions about sex work and who sex workers are and it's either highly um, pathologised and victimised or highly glamorised and, in fact, it's work. You know, and um, it, it and you know, I think that that kind of it does take a lot of unpacking uh, to realise that we, you know, that we are actually complex, whole human beings with other identities and other lives, and we're not just you know like the the hooker in the dumpster, as you see um, in you know on TV or the the pretty woman stereotype. Um, it, we are actually whole human beings. Um, I think something that I had internalised that took me a while was um, I thought there was something wrong with orgasming with a client because I thought that when my work... I thought that my work was unreal and performance-based and if it crossed over into the remotely real, it took away from the real sex I was having in my private life. So I used to feel, like, a lot of weird shame and discomfort if I came with a client. And, like, the reality is, like, sometimes your body just actually orgasms against your will and I often find the clients I'm most revolted by I orgasm with the easiest, (laughs) which is, like, so annoying. But, like, um, so that's, like, taken me, like, a long time to reconcile, to be like, oh, I can sometimes enjoy it with someone who I actually hate and find really festive and that's, like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. so, were you ever tempted to fake not orgasming? I just would be... I would orgasm and then I wouldn't be like, oh, that was really good, I would orgasm, and then I'd kind of, like, get in the shower and be like... <laughs> you know, like, I wouldn't want them to know that it was real. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, why have I given you that satisfaction of actually having me orgasm? <laughs> it's okay to enjoy your job, Tilly. Yeah, no, totally, totally. That was what I had to unravel. Chantelle? <laughs> um, Internalise... Yeah, I, look, I guess, look, when I um, first started working, I, I used to internalise the shame that was put on me um, by, you know, the public as being a, a sex worker or if I was, you know, a, arrested, you know, I mean, police would say, oh, well, look at you, you deserved it, you know, look at the job you chose, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, it took me a while to get over that, but when I got over it, On that note, we're going to wrap it up. A big thank you to our panel for joining us today. to Gala Vanting, um, a Melbourne-based activist who put together this panel and uh, did a great job um, to the All About Women Festival for having and hosting this panel and to our audience who I think have taken something and are going to go home changed people from hearing (laughs) all this amazing stuff. Please thank one more time Jules Kim. You can watch this talk, along with the others recorded at the All About Women Festival, on our video platform called Stream. You'll find the link in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.